Blog Talk Radio. by the Appleseed Project, which is the sole project of the Revolutionary War Veterans Association. The Revolutionary War Veterans Association is dedicated to teaching the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the United States today. I mean, we, I got to tell you, we, we have it down. We do, we do a great job on this. And while we do that, we give you a bit of history about who you are and how you got here, about the folks who stood together on April 19, 1775, which is the birth date of our nation, the day that our nation actually started, about those folks who stood together and why they did so, about what it means to be an American and what your obligations are as an American, why that being American is not, uh, it's not granted to you, by virtue of a slot filled in on a piece of paper, it's granted to you when you accept the sacred obligation you have to safeguard the freedoms and liberties the founders handed directly to you so that you can hand them off to those who come after. Uh, I'd like to welcome everyone welcome everyone to the show tonight, and uh, we'll get started real quick with the upcoming shoots because... We have a slew of them. Normally, July is, uh, for the last few years, June, July, August, uh, you know, I've been slower months. It's the summer, it's hot, etc. <clears throat> not so anymore. There is not a slow month for the Appleseed Project. 
there's not a slow time. It's uh, it's full speed ahead. And we're going to start off this coming weekend, which is the July 10th and 11th weekend, in Birmingham, Alabama, followed by Carmi, Illinois, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Como, Mississippi, Fountain, Colorado, Jericho, Vermont, Miamisburg, Ohio, Niagara, Wisconsin, Ottawa, Illinois, Piru, California, Rolla, North Dakota, St. Augustine, Florida, Simsbury, Connecticut, Troop, New York, which I'm going to have the pleasure of attending uh, this weekend because I'm about uh, two miles from the range right now. That takes us to the weekend of July 17th and 18th, which will start off in Aberdeen, South Dakota, followed by Athens, Ohio, Boulder, Montana, Brighton, Colorado, Buckingham, Virginia, Burlington Flats, New York, which I'm also going to attend. I'm very lucky to uh, to be able to attend uh, multiple apple seeds in New York while I'm here. Citra, Florida, Eureka, Kansas, Hartford, Massachusetts, Hinkley, Minnesota, Kaysville, Utah, Lewiston, Idaho, Mannheim, Pennsylvania, Pine Bluffs, Wyoming, Proctor, Vermont, Washburn, Missouri, Winterset, Iowa, Yanceyville, North Carolina. That takes us to the July 24th and 25th weekend, which is Boaz, Kentucky, Calverton, New York, Danville, Illinois, Davila, Texas, which uh, I believe either uh, uh, Mark Alonzo or Brett Anderson will be taking over for me, Duluth, Minnesota, Duran, Illinois, El Paso Community College in El Paso, Texas, July 24th and 25th. Listen, this is an indoor range. If you're looking for a place to shoot here at the the hottest uh, weeks in the end of July out in West Texas, I'm going to recommend the El Paso uh, Community College indoor range. Here's the problem, though. There's a limit of 20 positions, 20 places on the line. So how are you going to make sure that you've got a place on the line? Well, here's how you do it. You go to appleseedinfo.org, rwva.org. That'll take you to the home page. On the home page, there's a row of tabs on the top of the page. Look for the one that says Appleseed. Put your cursor on the Appleseed tab. You'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule. That'll take you to the page I'm on now. Now, once you're on that page and you've decided what event you're going to attend, it'll be listed by the month and then in alphabetical order by the city. Now, say you decide to go to El Paso Community College, Texas, you want to make sure that you uh, have a place on the line, look to the right of that event and you'll see two hot links. One says information. It'll give you all the information you need for that specific location. Uh, it'll tell you all of the uh, the rules, uh uh, who to contact, etc. Right underneath that one is one that says register, and that's the one you're looking for right there. When you decide to go to an event, <clears throat> don't be wishy-washy about it. If you decide to go to an event, decide to go and then go. Make sure you have a place on the line, you register. Go to that hot link that says register, click on that. That'll take you to our Eventbrite page. That's the third-party software that does the registrations for us. Go ahead and pre-register for the event. 
You know, it does a couple of things. One, it makes sure that you have a place on the line. There's no guarantee that you're going to get our place on the line by walking on at the last minute. Uh, Hawkhaven has sent me a PM uh, with a list of uh, examples of why this, uh, why this is true. I'll read them to you in just a minute. So it will guarantee that you have a place on the line, but not only that, it also helps the program. You know, we're not doing uh, one event in Texas and one in Arkansas next weekend. We've got them spread out across the United States. Uh, everywhere you look, we've got events going. For all of those events, we've got to have instructors. We've got to have airline tickets. We've got to have hotels. Uh, we need to make sure that we get the right amount of uh, supplies for the shoot to the shoot. So there's a lot of planning that needs to be done, and a lot of what we're basing that on is how many people are going to the event. If there's 20 folks going to the event, then we don't need to send as many instructors uh, or supplies as there are if there's 45. So this helps us a great deal in uh, making sure that we have the uh, right amount of instructors, we have the right uh, amount of airline tickets and hotel rooms and rental cars, etc. Because we're doing this all on a shoestring. You know, 70 bucks uh, for a weekend of shooting, it, you're, you're not going to find that anywhere except at the Appleseed Project. Everywhere else you can expect to pay uh, between uh, five and ten times that amount. We're doing it on a budget because we're not interested in making money. Uh, that would be good. What we are interested in is making riflemen. So make sure that when you decide to go to an event, pick out the, uh, the date, the location, take a look at the information on the hot link there, and then go to the registration page and register for the event. Like I said, when you decide to go to an event, make a decision to go to the event. Don't be wishy-washy. Make your decision. Pluck down your name and get a place on the line. All right, starting with the uh, 24th and 25th weekend again, we'll start back up with Gibsonburg, Ohio, Glen Helen, California, Hastings, Nebraska, Kingman, Arizona, Lodi, Wisconsin, Mayaka City, Florida, Riley, Indiana, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That takes us to the end of the month, which is the 31st and the 1st. That starts off in Castle Rock, Washington, followed by Cedar City, Utah, Colebrook, Connecticut, Elk River, Minnesota, Enfield, New Hampshire, Farragut, Iowa, Fresno, California, Hernando County, Florida, Humansville, Missouri, Mobile, Alabama, Racine, Wisconsin, Ramsar, North Carolina, Salem, Ohio, Santa Barbara, California, and Waterman, Illinois. I think that's a, uh, a full month ahead. <clears throat> All right, I see that the, uh, the chat room is filling up, which is great because uh, the, uh, there are a lot of Appleseed folks that follow the program on the the online chat, and uh, if you have questions that you'd like to uh, get the answers to, that's a good place to do it. We've got a lot of instructors, a lot of staff members there. Uh, our guest tonight is going to be Jack Spurko from the Survival Podcast. Jack has been our guest before, and uh, he's just he's an absolutely great guest. He's a great host of his show. Uh, and I don't think I've ever seen a show before where a, a, 
where a man was able to get in as much information in a one-hour time slot as he does. I'm telling you, there's very little chafe at all in that show. Every single nugget that comes out of there is well worth your attention. And uh, uh, Jack's going to be on just a second. And he also has some special offers and stuff that uh, he's giving to you folks tonight. And, and I'll let him tell you about them when he comes on. First thing I want to do, though, before that is <clears throat> tell folks that uh, you know we're chugging along. Uh, the, the summer program is going great. <clears throat> we have the additions now. Uh, I'm sure that you guys know that uh, that the folks in the program have been working hard on on promoting. You know that's uh, one of the areas that that we always feel like everybody else is is doing uh, that job, the job promotions. So uh, a lot of folks don't feel that uh, that it's that pressing to them. Everybody's an Appleseed ambassador. You know, everybody is an Appleseed spokesman and an Appleseed recruiter. But a lot of times folks feel like that somebody somebody else is doing that job. And I want to make sure everyone understands that that, that job belongs to every single person in the program. You don't have to be uh, uh, an instructor or a red hat, a senior instructor, a master instructor. You don't even have to be a member. All you have to do is get that info in your ear that, uh, that the Appleseed program and the message that we give folks is one that could quite possibly affect the future of our nation. All you have to do is understand that, and uh, and that gives you license to tell other people about the project and get them involved. So please make sure you're doing that. And uh, uh, I wanted to make sure that folks knew that uh, that there is now a, an Appleseed uh, billboard on uh, Interstate 35 in Texas, 14 feet by 48 feet wide, uh, 24-hour illumination. And uh, it's one of the, just the first of many across the nation going up across the uh, uh, the United States. Uh, within the week, we should have billboards in Indiana. Within two weeks, we should have billboards in California, Ohio, Illinois. Uh, within four weeks, we should have billboards in uh, Florida, uh, up along the uh, East Coast, and then wherever else, uh, whatever else the next uh, states are. But uh, very soon, we will have uh, billboards up in just about every state. And, uh, and a lot of folks have worked real hard on this, and I want to thank them. Uh, We've got a lot of folks in WL3 <clears throat> that are working very hard to smooth out the wrinkles in the Appleseed program, and uh, I just want to remind you to give them any and all assistance that you can. Uh, these folks have taken on uh, the very, uh, the very difficult and usually very thankless task of of doing the the making the sausage part of making the sausage. Everybody likes to eat the sausage, right? But nobody likes to make it because it's ugly and, and nasty and icky. And uh, and that's just uh, that's part of life. But somebody's got to make the sausage. And uh, the folks there are working real hard on it. Uh, uh, Moggett and uh, uh, I can't even, I don't even know the whole list of everybody, but I know that Moggett and uh, Sam D and, 
uh, uh, Kirk uh, Spitzickler. Uh, there's a long list of folks uh, that are working hard. I believe Western Rose and Even Star. Uh, you look at a name in the Appleseed program. You look at a name of somebody that you know is a uh, is a mover and a shaker and a worker in the program, and uh, they will end up uh, as a WL3 member making the sausage. So give them whatever help you can when you can. When they ask for something, please try and get the information to them in a speedy manner. Uh, if they ask for help on a project, please uh, see if you can't dig up an extra five minutes uh, to devote uh, to helping that. Uh, <clears throat> all right, uh, one other thing, and that is that somebody told me uh, yesterday or today that my volume is still uh, not equal to the guest, etc. So I put in another work order for that from uh, at Blog Talk. <clears throat> they have assured me three times so far that uh, that it is exactly the same volume as everyone else's. And that uh, I guess despite the fact that when I listen to it in the archives, it's not the same volume. They said it's the exact same volume. So, <laughs> so we have another work order on that. <clears throat> And uh, and hopefully we'll get that uh, we'll get that cleared up. All right. Without further ado, uh, I'd like to bring on uh, uh, Mr. Spearco, Jack Spearco. Welcome to the uh, Appleseed uh, Radio. Hey man, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed being here with you. And uh, I was here last time. It was a lot of fun. And hopefully we'll have a lot of fun tonight as well. Oh yeah, like I just I just got to saying it. You. Uh, you're one of the few guys I know that can uh, that get 59.786 uh, minutes out of uh, out of an hour fulfilled with worthwhile information. You do a great job on your show, and uh, that's one of the reasons that folks love having you here is because uh, they get another chance uh, to hear you. And uh, we'd like for you to talk about uh, well, there's lots of things we want you to talk about it, but uh, I know that you've got. Uh, some things that you want to talk about. One is the uh, you said you had some an offer you wanted to make to the listeners tonight. So go ahead and, and let the folks know about that. Sure. Um, one of the things I do with my show is uh, called the Member Support Brigade, and that's the way that people support the show. And in return, you get uh, about 20 videos uh, that are by me that are available no one else on different things with prepping and survivalism. Uh, you also get discounts to about 20 different vendors. It's about $150 worth of free ebooks are uh, available for instant download, and that's only $50 a year that I uh, that I have people support the show at. And tonight I'm doing that for uh, $30 for the first year uh, with the code Rifle. And probably the easiest way to find uh, more information on that is go to uh, survivalpodcast.net and click on Member Support Brigade. Uh, I also have a book that we'll talk about called Mastering the 22 Rifles coming out in ebook format. We can chat about that in a bit, I guess. Uh, but if you go to masterrifle.com, you can uh, register basically to be notified as soon as that book's available. Again, that's going to be ebook, which means it's going to be a download. We can chat about why I'm doing that if, if you'd like. Uh, that sounds great. Listen, folks, <clears throat> I just typed this in the chat. I'm signing up for this because I think it's well worth it. And uh, I'm going to advise you to. Uh, to also take Jack up on this. Uh, I'm telling you, I've, I've yet to listen to an episode that uh, that was not worth listening to. I mean, there, there's not a single uh, episode of the show that I've listened to that wasn't a great, uh, that didn't have a, a solid 
uh, chunk uh, in it uh, that, that everybody could use. Uh, I appreciate that, man. Thank you. The the book that you have coming out now, not, like I said, I know that you don't, you're not, uh, the books aren't uh, available yet. We know that. Right. But uh, what I, what I wanted to do is that a lot of folks have been asking about it and asking me about it, and I told them, I said it, and he said it's not ready yet. Just just hold your horses. <laughs> you know, it's coming. But uh, yeah. I would like for you to, if you wouldn't mind giving folks just a uh, just a little bit of a, a snapshot of what they can expect. Uh, sure. When they when sure. they finally do get a hold of the book, the book is called Mastering the Twenty Two Rifle, and and much as as you guys teach in Appleseed, I believe that if you have good fundamental rifle skills with a twenty two, well then you have good fundamental rifle skills with any rifle. Uh, there's there's a correct and an incorrect way to shoot a rifle, and once you master that methodology, you can then pick up any rifle and master that rifle. There may be some nuances and things you need to learn about it, but I believe that the twenty two is the ultimate training tool. Uh, you know, for a lot of reasons. One, new shooters. I mean, these are things that most people listening to the show would be familiar with. Low recoil, low noise profile. So it's good to teach new shooters. With there's a lot of places that you can go ahead and shoot a 22 without maybe having the police show up. Where if you started cracking off shots with a 30 odd six, you know, maybe Johnny Law would show up and say, "We, we don't want you doing that here." So that right. was the reason I stuck with the 22 on the book. It's it's going to be an ebook, and I've had a lot of people asking me why don't you put it out as a as a hard copy book, you know, something I could put in my hands and you know leave on the coffee table and what have you. And the reason is part of part of the reason that it's not available, and I thought it would be by now. It's become a much bigger project than I anticipated because of the amount of photography in the book for positions, uh, every position you can think of, uh, not just how to be in the proper position, but the things to look out for that people commonly fall into. And with the amount of color photography in this book, if I did it as a, you know, a coffee table book, we're talking about you know, a printing cost of around $80 to $90 an, an edition, so then I've got to sell it at 100 a few bucks on it, and I just don't think that's practical and it won't get it into enough hands. So by doing an electronic format, I can go nuts with the photography and make sure everything I want in there is there, and uh, you know, it doesn't have that, that hold-in-the-hand uh, a uh, quality to it, but it's all the information and that's more than it would ever be if I put it in a print book. Well, I think it also fits. Uh, I think it fits the whole thing that you're doing. I mean, everything that you're doing is is made uh, accessible to folks online, and uh, I think that's great. I, I like the way that you do that, uh, and I think that I think that the 22, like you said, the 22 is, a, is uh, everybody. Uh, can grab a 22 rifle. You can you can shoot it just about anywhere. You can uh, it's the most affordable uh, ammunition you can get. Usually the most affordable rifle you can get. And I know that you're aware that at the uh, in the Appleseed project uh, that we have the, of course the name for it is the LTR, the Liberty Training Rifle, <laughs> and we use it uh, uh, we use it a great bit because we're shooting uh, 400 to 500. Uh, and sometimes plus rounds per a weekend at an event. Now, a couple of years ago, that wasn't that big a deal for centerfire rifles. But now, with the price of centerfire ammunition, which has uh, increased in value at a better rate than uh, than uh, gold or uh, or anything else, uh, that's just not uh, it's not economically practical for everyone to do. If you're talking about five or six hundred rounds. At fifty to seventy cents a round, it, it starts getting up there in price. So we've advised right. folks to use the the twenty two rifle uh, 
in order to save money uh, on the ammunition, and also because when you learn how to shoot uh, the skills and techniques, you can learn to shoot with the 22, and those are transferable directly to the center fire rifle. So you're going to have a lot of photographs in there for folks, right? Correct. A lot of photographs on positions and both proper improper positions. I mean, one of the one of the motivations for doing this book, I was actually in the middle of writing a book. It was more of a, a top-level book on the overall topic of survivalism and prepping and, and modern survival philosophy, and I, I kind of sidelined it to do this book because I constantly, like probably a lot of folks on this on this phone call, I'm looking at videos on YouTube and pictures and blogs about people that like to shoot because it's a big passion for me. And I constantly see people that really do sort of know what they're doing with totally wrong positioning, uh, the head, you know, the head being way down on the weapon rather than the weapon being brought up to the line of sight, being one of the big ones that I call the lean back, the chicken wing, all of these things, and I just, I, it, it drives me crazy. And I guess that I'm probably not uh, really an obsessive compulsive person in anything other than proper form of the rifle. And when I see that, I kind of want to do something about it. So that was the one of the motivating factors of this book. The other thing is a lot of the stuff that you were talking about. I, first of all, I believe uh, very much like Appleseed does and everybody that's involved that rifle craft is absolutely an, an integral part of America's heritage. And that if we lose that, we lose part of what makes us America. We're unique in this nation that we have something like the Second Amendment. And we're unique in the role that the rifle has played with us as a people. And I don't want that to go away. So I want people out shooting. And I also want people out shooting beyond punching holes in paper. I want people to fully master the rifle. And the way that I explain this in the book is if I wanted to teach you how to swing a baseball bat and hit baseballs, technically I can teach every single thing about that without ever actually using a ball. I could take a bat and stand with you in your living room and everything about the baseball swing. But eventually if you actually want to become fully proficient as a baseball uh, hitter, we have to put a ball, so we have to have a moving ball. But then if we really want to make you proficient as a hitter, we have to put another opponent out there. You have to hit the ball and you have to start running the bases. And if you don't do all of those things, you've only mastered one dimension of the baseball swing. So when I look at shooting a rifle, I figure that you've got to get out there and practice. And much like you would practice in your living room, I give you drills that you can use for form and technique where you don't even have to fire. You do dry fire exercises. Then we have to start hitting a moving ball. So, we t- so you have to like go into the batting cage. So that's where you get out on the range and you start punching holes in paper and shooting and, 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 and making notes down about how, where your shots are grouping, learning to read the wind, all of that other good stuff. But I also believe that at some point we need to add an opponent. Now, we don't go out and start a war to add an opponent, so for the rifleman, the opponent is, is, is game, live game and going out and hunting. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong if you don't eventually do that, but it's nice to add that. But with a 22, we open up this huge array of small game that we can hunt. A lot of guys can't afford to go out on a deer hunt, don't have the time to go out on a deer hunt, but just about everybody anywhere in the country can go out and hunt small game like squirrels, uh, shoot varmints, uh, shoot things like rabbits, all the different small game that's out there to collect with the 22. Well, the interesting thing is just like I can t- teach you how to shoot a 22, and you can take that skill and transfer it over to shooting a 306 or a 308 or you know an AR platform with any of the calibers that are available there, I can teach you how to hunt squirrels, and I can teach you how to clean a squirrel, and you know everything you really need to know how to do to go out and hunt and process deer. Now, there's nuances, there's differences. Squirrels, you don't have to worry about the wind so much with scent uh, like you do with the deer. But the basic mechanics of how you skin a squirrel are the same basic mechanics of how you skin a deer. So exactly. we can, squirrel hunters and rabbit hunters, we've got people that if they have to can go out there and shoot feral hogs, can shoot deer, can shoot elk, 
and do everything that they need to do to be fully proficient, not just as a rifleman, but as someone that can master that rifle, go out and use it to feed their family. And that's a skill that I hate to say. At some point, we may need that here in America. We may need to do more than just defend ourselves. We may need to feed ourselves. Right, and I think that you've you've got it just perfect. You can teach somebody to go out and and hit their target. But once they're sitting there... With the uh, with the rabbit on the table, and they got that dumb look on their face, and there's going to be some trouble. So, uh, so that sounds like a great idea. I mean, yeah. that's that's yeah. that's excellent. In fact, you'd be surprised to... how many people ask me, "Can you do a video on how to skin a squirrel or a rabbit?" I'm like, "Well, let's wait till it gets cold out, so I don't, you know, go out and point out a yeah. or something." But there's a lot yeah. of people out there that are getting into these things that want to know how to take that that the additional step. Right, and. Uh, there's also the uh, uh, what is the the rule the the R rule for rabbits. You know that you're uh, you're supposed to uh, only eat them in the R months. But, Correct, uh, because they they get worms in uh, warbles. Right, but you know worms worms are, are probably preferable to a starvation. So uh, correct, you know, correct. I, you can probably break that rule sometime. That's a great idea. Now you mentioned earlier about the. Uh, uh, the form about the stance, the posture, etc., and that really hits it with the with the Appleseed folks because you know that's something that we we work on really hard. So you're going to have a lot of photographs and a lot of instruction that's going to show people the correct uh, stance, the correct postures, uh, the correct positioning and stuff for shooting. That sounds great. Correct, and I, I try to put a lot of analogies in it so that it's not just. A lot of times you're trying to teach somebody they want the why or they need something to make it concrete for them. So, for instance, when I talk about things like bringing the, uh, the sights up to your, your eye sideline, what I tell people to do is you pick your target in the distance. And now imagine that there's a steel rod going from that target through your, uh, your strong eye, through the pupil, and out the back of your head. It's, it's literally locked your head into that sight line. And now simply bring the sights of your weapon, whether they're iron sights or a scope or whatever, up into that line of sight. Because I see people constantly, you know, they line the sights and then they're trying to find the target. And, and right. I, I know you guys do a good job of teaching people that, but as you know, when you get a new shooter, that's one of the first things you have to break them of. So I've tried to come up with a lot of um, metaphorical or uh, I don't even know what the right word is for, but... Uh, things that allow the person to make the, the, the abstract concept concrete, because it's a lot harder to do in written word and photographs other than standing right there and saying, no, your head needs to be here. That's a, it's a unique challenge when you write a book like this, as I've learned as I've tried to do it. Oh, yeah, exactly. If you can't, if the person can't, uh, if you can't get them into a 3D situation, uh, it, it, there is a lot more difficulty into it. When, we're, when I'm teaching somebody about the standing position, you know, I tell them the, the almost the exact same thing, which is you stand there, you're standing in the correct upright position, and I tell them to imagine themselves uh, posing for a, uh, uh, you know, for a statue like uh, of Julius Caesar. So you're standing there upright in, a, in really good posture. You bring the rifle up to into your sight line. You don't hunch your body down over it because then you're got, you have problems with sight alignment. You bring the sights up into your sight line. Uh, that's the and only that, way that you know, can get it correct. And then to me, that's that, and there's one other position with standing that I see as the primary uh, big errors that people make. One is that head coming down, and the other one is what I call a lean back. And I see this with a lot of younger shooters, smaller frame shooters, and a lot of females, and it comes down to two things. Either one, they're shooting a weapon that's, that's overweight for their, their profile, 
or they're somewhat intimidated by the weapon, and they do this kind of a lean back where the spine is leaning back. That throws the head out of kilter. It puts stress on the body. It causes little tiny shakes in your muscles. Of course, that reduces your accuracy. Uh, so these are the things that I've tried to point out. The other thing that I'm trying to do, though, is put photographs in with the proper stance and then the improper stance so that hopefully people can take these things and become their own instructor where maybe they work with a partner and they take short video or they take pictures of each other and they can now identify these things in their own stance and in their own posture because I, I'm sure you've dealt with this. You, you, you take a shooter and you have them shooting and you say this is what you're doing and what do they turn around and say to you? No, I'm not, right? Yeah. I'm sure yeah. you've dealt I'm sure every instructor... <laughs> has always dealt with no, I'm not. So I think, like, for instructors, one of the biggest tools you can have is a digital camera. So when they go, no, I'm not, you go, well, see, here you go. And, and you might yeah. find you have to get a certain angle to be able to show them what they're doing. But, you know, the quick uh, quick down and dirty, even low-end digital cameras that you can actually view the pictures on right away have become one of my greatest tools for working with people because it eliminates no, I'm not. Um, some of the some drills that I put in the book, one of them is, uh, working with a partner where you go to the range and you're shooting from various positions, your partner stands behind you and loads your rifle for you. And you fire a shot, and then you hand the rifle back and you fire it one shot at a time. Well, you don't know whether your partner has actually loaded the weapon or not. So what happens every time you flinch or pick your head up? You become consciously aware of that. So these are all the types of things that, you know, from a great uncle and my grandparents and uh, my uncles and my father, these are the things that I grew up learning to do. And I'm just trying to transfer them now to, to anybody who wants to take them. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, make them their own. Take the pieces that you want and uh, make them part of what you do. And if something doesn't fit you, that's fine. But what I do point out, and I think you guys probably point this out at your events as well, is that the rifle's been the same basic design for hundreds of years. The, the, the basic length of pull, the rise of the comb to the cheek, uh, the overall dimensions, the balance points, uh, sight line, all this stuff has been the same for hundreds of years. Why? Because the rifle has been designed to be specifically fired a specific way. So there's only so many leniency you get in, you know, the I do it my way type of uh, thinking. But when it comes down to the drills and all, you know, take the ones that make sense to you. Right. Right. And I've used the I've used the camera technique because I had a fellow that, uh, and we still laugh looking at the pictures, I had a fellow that uh, he was actually from a SWAT team. And uh, and he was doing it in the standing position, and uh, we're trying to explain it. He said, "Yeah, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing." I said, "No, no, you're you're really not doing that." And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So I took a photograph and I showed him. I said, "See, look at the guy next to you. See how he's standing there? And look at you. You look like you're getting ready for a nuclear attack." You know, he was <laughs> he was hunched down. His knees were bent. And he was like, you know, he's really hunched down. And so we still use that photograph, and that works really well. Uh, I guess more guys. More folks might uh, want to start trying to do that because if somebody does say, yeah, that's what I'm doing, uh, it's very easy for them to see that's not what they're doing. Now, some of that was like a uh, that's like high-power style shooting, too. A lot of folks get that where they, where they lean way back and they've got the elbow on their, like, racked up on their hip. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, see, here's the thing about that, folks. So even with the recoil, with the lean back, if you think about this way, if you lean back like that and you take recoil from a rifle, your body has nowhere to go. And that means 100% of the, the energy from the recoil of that rifle and you get into shooting you know, your higher magnum calibers or heavy shotgun loads, that transfers into your body. There's no absorption point. It's like getting on a bicycle or a motorcycle and going over a jump and locking your knee straight and coming down with a thud. 
you, you do damage to the equipment and to yourself that way. When you, lean, when you get proper form and you lean in, you give your body somewhere to go, and that allows you to absorb some of that recoil. And that's something that I see where people are intimidated by the recoil. Then they go into that type of locked, lean-back position. The recoil knocks the snot out of them, and it becomes a self-fulfilling you know, prophecy that makes it worse and worse. They get tenser, and they lean back further, and they get tighter, and then they get clobbered more. And you take them and just move forward a couple inches and allow that, you know, allow your body to be what it is, which is a giant shock absorber. When we jump off a staircase, we don't land flat-footed. We, we instinctively know to absorb, absorb the energy. Well, you can do the same thing with a rifle. It's really not complicated, but it all starts with the fundamentals that you learn early on. And if um, so many people today are picking up a rifle or a shotgun, and, you know, especially guys, they see guys on YouTube teaching their girls to shoot, you know, their, their girlfriend or their wife or whatever, and they think it's oh, fun yeah. to watch these pretty gals get the snot knocked out of them. You know what I think is awesome is when that's that gal terrible. picks up the rifle yeah. and shoots better than me. That's what I think yeah. is awesome. Right. Hey, listen, we've got another uh... – we got a question here from you, which I'm curious to see if you've if you've thought about uh, uh, in your book, and uh, it's, it was put here in the online chat, and that is uh, this is a person who says they're a left eye dominant, and uh, so they're going to be. He's wondering if uh, let's see, advocating shooting left-handed if left eye dominant. Uh, I, I have a whole chapter on that, and here's here's my. Here's the stock answer, and then here's kind of the, well, I've talked to some people and seen the results answer. For 99.9% .9 of people, I would say if you are left eye dominant, learn to shoot left-handed. Um, I guess it comes down to how, it, I've, you know, that's, that's something I've always said was 100% until recently. But then I've met people who don't really seem to have a dominant eye. You can put them through the drills, and you can kind of define, yeah, you're right eye dominant or you're left eye dominant, but they have such let's say, spot-on vision with both eyes that they can pull off shooting with the offhand. And I, right. I guess that's okay for them. But for most people, and if you wear glasses or contacts so that you have any level of uh, impediment to your vision, you're going to have a, a, an eye that is definitely, you're going to have most questions. When, when somebody first asks me, which eye is your dominant eye? Well, my right eye because I can barely see out of my left. Right. So if you're in that scenario... Uh, and this is the big thing that screws people up. You see, and you see this is again with new shooters and then people thinking it's funny to see somebody get recoil into their face. They put the rifle into their right hand, and then they look across and they try to line up their left eye. That is never, ever, ever, ever going to work. Uh, right. and I, unless I guess you're wounded and it's the only option you have, that is not that is not how you shoot. It's certainly not how you train. Right, and you can... You can uh... You can usually tell very quickly when you start working the shooter. You can tell very quickly if it's uh, almost a degree of dominance. If it's a totally right. dominant left eye, and then uh, you tell them, "Hey, you're going to have to relearn. You're going to have to relearn to shoot uh, with your left hand, and you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to figure this out." Uh, if there is some question about it, sometimes you can get them to close the eye. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I'll put a piece of uh, tape or cardboard over the. Uh, the left eye to see if you can control it that way. But just like you said, I've normally uh, normally it's not a uh, a an if or situation. Normally it's like the left eye. If you're right hand shooter and you're left eye dominant, normally that left eye is dominant, and it's going to take it's going to take every bit of power uh, that you have. And the best thing to do is go ahead 
Start working on it now. Start working on uh, and learning, relearning to shoot left-handed. And when folks do that, I mean, it's not like uh, it's not like they're having to completely relearn everything. All they're really no. they after after just uh, like an hour or so, they're pretty much in the swing of it. And if you have major eye dominance, it's much easier to retrain your your body to to use a left hand, or if you're you know if you're if you're left-handed and you're right eye dominant to train to use your right hand. But it is to retrain your eyes. And the way I explain that in the book is there are millions of hunters in the United States that I think are just terrible piss-poor riflemen, is just to be direct. Uh, most right. of them hunt in box blinds under feeders. The feeder is exactly 75 or 100 yards away from the blind. The feeder goes off, the deer run in, they pick one, and they shoot one, and they do it every year. And to be fair to them, every year they fire the gun one time, and a deer goes down. Right? So at yep. least they hit their target. Now, their form is crap. If, if you put them offhand, they would have trouble hitting a, a, a grapefruit at 25 yards with a 22. They, but they hit a deer. Why? Because in spite of how crappy their form is, the most important thing to being able to hit your target is being able to see it properly. So when you look at eye dominance, you have to think about that. Your vision is the most important fundamental to you being able to consistently hit a target. Without the vision, no matter how rock solid you are, you're rock solid and you're pointing 90 degrees in the wrong direction. You're not going to hit anything. So the right. vision is where everything keys off of. Right, exactly, and uh, and where that is part of our instruction when we're talking uh, about these sticks to firing the shot, uh, we're telling folks the same thing whenever they're focusing on their sights, and that is <clears throat> whenever you're looking at your rear sight and your front sight and your target, you have three things that we're asking you to consider. But your eye only has one focal plane that it can uh, that it can actually stay on. You can look around you; you can see all the different things at different distances, but you're not going to be able to really focus on something until you give your eye the command to focus on that specific item, which is at a specific distance. So we're giving folks the, uh, the three things they need to consider, and we're asking them what the most important thing for them to consider is, and that is that's going to be the front sight. You have to focus your eye on the front sight in order to hit your target. I can guarantee you, if your front sight isn't on that target, I don't care what else you're doing right, it ain't going to hit it. If if you see the target, if the target is a little bit blurry, a little bit out of shape, if that crystal clear front sight is positioned correctly right there in the center of that uh, little bit out of focus, out of shape, blurry spot, it's going to hit in the center of that out of shape, blurry little spot. So... Having the I, I understanding your sight. Right, I see some folks in the chat room right now saying, "Well, I'm, you know, X dominant, and I can shoot with the other hand." And and one of those folks said, "If you can do it, if you can do it, great." But my point has always been, but if you don't try, you'll never know how much better you could shoot. Right. And I think that there's a lot of people that shortchange themselves and might be able to tighten groups up. To an, it doesn't mean that you're not proficient. I mean, I, I wish to God I had 20-20 vision in both eyes instead of 2200 in my left, right? For me, shooting with my left eye, it's not an option, glasses or not. I'm legally blind in it. So I wish I could be like those people that say that. But I can also tell you from working with countless shooters over the years that when you get a person shooting with the dominant eye in the, domin- you know, in the hand that matches that dominant eye, they eventually shoot better than themselves prior to that. And that's what mastery is all about. It's about... Right, and listen, since we're talking about this, 
I'm just saying that since we're talking about this, and uh, and since we have as our guest Jack Spirico from Survival Podcast, uh, then we have some other things that we can consider too. And one of those things I like folks to consider is, listen, when you go out there and you're shooting, now I'm not talking about at apple seeds. Uh, you know, at apple seeds, we'd like you to get your stuff figured out and and work on it and work on mastering your technique and the, uh, the and work on the skills that we give you there. But what I'm talking about is that in your in your life, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, which is uh, which I learned from Jack, which is called living a uh, a, a survival type lifestyle. That is, if you when you're out there shooting, <clears throat> if you're right-handed, right-eye dominant, that's fine. But you know what? There's a lots of different things that could come along in your life to change that, and some of them could happen immediately, instantly. So you better take a few minutes every now and then. To put, uh, if you're right-handed, right-eye dominant, you better take a few minutes every now and then to put that uh, buttstock in your left shoulder and use your left eye. And let's see how good you do then, because at some point your survival may depend on that. So you better start right. understanding what it takes to master switching from one shoulder to the other, one eye to the other, and see how that works. And, and you know, you may be in a situation where you're like me and you're blind in an eye, and then you learn to shoot as instinctively as possible at certain distances because um, with some practice, it's reasonable to be able to hit, uh, especially in a defensive situation, man-sized targets uh, out to ranges of, of 20 yards with instinctive shooting. It's probably not the best idea, but as you just stated, there are times when circumstances take away the opportunity to do things the way we train to do them all the time. So we need to train to do things uh, in ways that are not, let's say, optimum. Because usually the field takes away optimum. Uh, we can train to shoot offhand perfect, and we can have you know that standing offhand position mastered. And uh, even something as mundane as shooting a squirrel that's decided to go up a tree and leave us a quarter inch of its head to be seen coming through the Y, and we're standing on a 45-degree bank that's covered in slate, uh, if it's something that mundane or it's a defensive situation where our life depends on it, either way, we, we focus on that proper 100% uh, correct fundamental so that we can adapt to the non-perfect situation that is the real world. I've had this, this, this debate with uh, some folks that uh, I've, I've met through some other uh, channels that are uh, from the uh, former Soviet Union that, that trained with the uh, Russian uh, Svetnok troops. And what they said is that our form here in the United States is too much of a concrete, solid form. And I don't think that because they only see training films and stuff like that, they don't get that that concrete, solid form is all about adaptation. But you have to have somewhere that you're centered from so that you can move out to because that will be you're adapting only as much as you need to for the specific situation, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. It makes a, a huge amount of sense. And I've heard that before, too, from from kind of the same venues, which always surprised me because – uh, if there was anybody ever usually that uh, personified the uh, or that exemplified the what exactly what they were saying it was the soviets you know which had the uh, uh they they never really had the lead from the bottom up uh correct you know theory that the, that the us has had so it's been a a top down uh, situation there i know it's different for the spetsnaz and uh, for the other folks but i think that we have we have a really good the people who are involved in it have a really good shooting uh, uh, protocols, and uh, and like you said, it works really good. You you develop a a good, uh, really uh, concrete center, and then you start working away from that and adapting away from that, and uh, and that's going to be the best uh, 
that's going to be your best situation. I agree completely. And um, I, I also think that we need to, as a people, realize how important these things really are. And I, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but uh, whenever I listen to your show or I look at what you guys are doing, I see a whole lot of motivation to go out and share this with others. And kind of in that vein, I think it's important that we, you know, you guys are great about telling the story of the history of America, uh, you know, Lexi Lexington and Green, for instance, and, and all that other great stuff. And that's important. But it's also important that people just get that even outside of war, even outside of independence, even outside of revolution, that there would not be the America that we know today if it was not for the fact that the average American for over 200 years knew how to pick up a rifle and use it. And I oh, think yeah. we're losing that. We are freaking losing that today, folks. People have lost touch with that reality. We have people saying nonsensical crap that are the gun control crowds, like you don't need a gun. And my response to that is, well, you don't need a freaking Lexus. But I don't begrudge your right to drive one. And it's your property, so I'm not about to go try to take it away from you. So maybe I don't, in your mind, need, you know, my 1917 Enfield that was brought back from World War One. but you damn well aren't getting your hands on it. It's my property, and whether you agree with it or not, we live in a nation that recognizes my right to own it. Uh, and, and that's huge as well, for now. But the way we keep that right is for people to understand how important that ownership has been to making us who the hell we are. I don't want to be France or Great Britain or Belgium. I don't care to be one of those nations. If I did, I would go there. And I, I hate to sound like a jerk, but I feel like the people that tell me all the time we should be more like them, they should get their butts up and go there. Exactly. Like that in the world, this nation is whether, you know, we make mistakes. I'm not arrogant in my nationalism. We've done some really dumb things over the years, and we've done some really great things. But when you add it all up together, there is no nation that has made the contributions to the world in the last 200 years that the United States has. And without the rifle, it would not have happened. It's what settled the West. It's what tamed the country. It's what made people self-sufficient and independent. And that self-sufficiency and independence is what's led our industrial uh, might over the years. Those two things can't be separated. I know no, something you, you guys probably ought to talk about, but I mean, you know, it's, it, it drives me nuts to see some of the. Everybody's real happy about this uh, this this new Supreme Court case that came down. I'm I'm appalled. I'm appalled that it was a split decision by one vote. Yeah. I want to know if these other justices can read the freaking Constitution and comprehend what it says. Oh they, no, they, and they, I think they, that's, that's about that's politics, ab- right? Absolutely important, and it's absolutely one of the main missions uh, that I feel that Appleseed is fulfilling. You know, whenever I was a kid, uh, and of course that's, uh, that's been millennia ago, uh, but everybody I knew, everybody, every kid I knew, even the girls, every kid I knew uh, was, uh, was familiar with shooting, uh, you know, to some degree or another, and uh, every single person. And to me, that wasn't strange. To me, uh, for somebody to say, "Oh no, I don't. Uh, I've never shot a rifle," would be would have been very strange. Now today, I can't believe it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Today you've got kids, and I'm not even talking about rural because I live rurally, and we're talking about kids that, who are living out in the middle of uh, of nowhere, <clears throat> and they have not shot a rifle, 
And to me, that just that scares the death out of me. Because you know what happens is when those kids turn 18 and uh, they're eligible to vote, they, uh, they've never held a rifle in their hands. They've never shot a rifle. They have no knowledge of the history, uh, the intertwined history of the rifle and America. And to them, having the right to have a rifle or not have a rifle is neither here nor there. They could care less one way or the other. And that and is what's going to be the end of us. That's the thing. It doesn't just bring – it's not just about people that are vehemently opposed to gun ownership. It's about people that are apathetic to it because they don't understand its importance. And that's what you're describing there. And you see it not just in the children that have never shot or have not been exposed to a rifle uh, or, or any type of shooting uh, sports. You see it in the response that people have to seeing a young man or a young girl with a gun. When I was 12 years old, 13, 14 years old anyway, I was growing up in rural Pennsylvania. And it was the 1980s, and, and it's not like I'm talking about 1965 here, folks. In 1980, you know, 84, 85, 86, we're talking. And I would take my little Marlin 25 and, and a box of shells that I would mow grass to, to a port, and I would go up to this little place called Pine Hill Mountain right behind our house, and I would walk through kind of this little small neighborhood area to get there. And, of course, I wouldn't load my rifle or anything generally uh, in that situation, you know, and you'd be crossing roads and all, you follow proper firearm safety. But if any neighbor responded in any way, it was usually somebody waving real fast, like, come here, and it was like a neighbor that had a groundhog in their garden that they wanted shot. Today, in that same place, (laughs) in that same place, the frickin' ATF would be called if the same age child was walking across the street on their way to proper shooting. They would freak out. The kid and the parents parents would end up in jail. Homeland Security would be involved. It would be, the, it would be, and, you know, there's joke emails going around it, but it's not a joke, folks. This stuff really happens. There was just a kid sent home from school. I don't know if you guys heard about this or not. They had a project to do in school. He put toy soldiers, the little two-inch ones, like the little ones we used to army man, guys, glued them to a camouflage hat. They sent him home because the soldiers had guns. And it violated the zero, pol- zero tolerance policy of the school of having no guns, including toy guns. Now, everybody yeah. with a brain, except the people educating these children, understands the reason for that rule. If you take one of these things like an airsoft uh, an M9 and you put that into a backpack and Johnny takes that to school, it can cause an absolute hysterical event, right? right. Because no one knows if it's real or not, and you've got to assume it is. But there's no way that we can mistake a two-millimeter uh, rifle in the hands of a two-inch plastic army soldier for a real weapon. And the fact that these people are educating our children, I'll tell you what, it has me angrier than anything the president of the United States has done in his first two years in office. Way angrier, because these people are forming an impression on our children that will last a lifetime, and they're teaching them nonsense like this. And no wonder we have a generation growing up that instead of being empowered by owning a weapon, is in fear of the weapon itself. That the weapon oh, yeah. is the danger, not the person behind it, but the weapon. There's a blog, I can't remember where, but this guy's got a webcam on a rifle sitting in a corner, and it's been there for like 10 years, and it, the camera's been there for 10 years, and he's like, we're waiting for the, it's loaded, and he's like, we're waiting for this rifle to do something. <laughs> you know, and it makes a good point. It makes a great point, you know? We're waiting oh, yeah, for exactly. to commit a crime. It's loaded, it's an assault weapon, quote unquote, you know? It's everything that it's not supposed to be. Look, I even have a bayonet attached to it, and yet for 10 years it's done nothing to harm anyone. And, uh, oh, yeah. You know, I don't know if I put my weapon on, on video camera, but I think he's got a pretty secure setup. But, you know, that's, that's reality, but our children are actually 
if you're a one young man I took shooting about 10 years ago, uh, came into my home, and he was a good friend of my son's, and I was doing some reloading. He was afraid to touch gunpowder because he thought it was hot. <laughs> now, I don't even know where he got that idea. But see, that's, it's, it's funny, and it's kind of a goof, and I loved him like a second son, so I goofed on him and all. But it's also sad. Oh, yeah, definitely. Burn your hand by punching in our gunpowder. It just, it, it, so, I mean, that's what we're up against, folks. That's why stuff like you guys do at Appleseed is so important. That's why teaching people the truth about guns is important uh, and making sure that shooting stays part of American life. Without that, you know, oh, I talk a lot in my show about prepping and being a survivor and dealing with anything from a, a small disaster to a major disaster to break down a society. But if we don't preserve who we are as a people and as families, what are we surviving for? And, and to me, those things don't get separated very easily. Right. And, you know, you, you made a, a great point. And I'm telling you, the media, uh, the media is on top of this, I mean, completely. And, uh, you know, our last, uh, we did a show last week, and we were talking about uh, also, and I, I don't want to get too far off track here, but we were talking about the, uh, the United Nations and their role uh, in this whole situation. But the media, of course, is absolutely to blame because uh, they, they want you to think, and they've done a great job of it, that any time you see a photograph, if you see a, a white guy, or, or even worse, two white guys, and they both have uh, firearms, they're, uh, they're domestic terrorists. I mean, there, there really can be no other explanation of that. And what I try and tell folks, and what we're trying to really expand the program and make sure that everybody understands that the Constitution doesn't just protect white guys, you know, because the media does the same thing to, uh, to minorities. If, if you see a, uh, a photograph of, a, uh, of, say, a black and a Hispanic and they both had rifles, well, obviously they're getting prepared Gang to carjack, right? yeah, carjack or rob a 7-Eleven because that's the only yeah. reason they would do it. And we try to make the folks understand, look, the Constitution belongs to everybody, and the absence of the right to keep and bear arms affects everybody. Uh, if, if I were a person, a minority person, I, I would be absolutely involved in making sure that I had the right to keep and bear arms. I mean, there are, there are too many good examples uh, of the other side of that. So we're trying to make sure that everyone understands that, that the, the Constitution doesn't just cover uh, one group of people. It covers everybody. Uh, yeah, they may be happy. Some folks may be happy with who is at the steering wheel of uh, of the of the government right now. But it could be anybody. Anybody could be up there. And you need the protection of the Constitution, no matter who is in charge. You know, and it, to me, it's also some, this is something we do not teach our children in schools any longer. And I think I was probably the last generation where where this was taught by history teachers in at least some high schools. The Constitution of the United States and the rights inherent in it are not seen as applying to Americans. They are seen as applying to humans. And that is so important. In other words, in most nations, a Constitution of a nation says what rights a, a citizen has based on the government bequeathing them on the people. In the United States, we have the complete opposite. We have a government that from its inception stated that it's humans as men and as women that are free, we have certain rights, and the government should not infringe upon them, meaning that the government, without an amendment to the Constitution, has no right to infringe upon them because they don't have the power in the first place. And America's 
place with the Constitution and the Declaration was to be an example to other nations, not necessarily going in and imposing our will on them, but to stand tall and say, look, you want liberty? This is what it looks like. And so when we hear things like, well, we're not going to apply the Constitution to this person because they're from a different country, I'm sorry, bullshit, right? Because if it doesn't apply to everybody, it doesn't apply to anybody. There is no selective application of inherent civil human rights. And, and, and the media always like to point back to the, uh, the, the black spots on American history with things like slavery. That's yesterday. Okay, those things evolved, and that Constitution, when it was put in place, was put in place by men that could not change that at that time and form a nation. But when they put the Constitution the way together, the, together the way they did, the eventual fall of that and the eventual new rights that were bestowed on, on, on people of color, on, on women, there was no other way it could have turned out. It was a perfect document because the change that everybody talks about, you know, can be changed and it's flowing, it's, you know, like flowing history. No, the change that was built into it was changed to increase liberty, not to increase governmental power. And we're exactly. we people trying to change that today and use it, that change BS to increase the power of government. One of the most brilliant things ever said by our current president, he saw as a problem, I thought, saw as an absolute wonderful thing. He stated that the Constitution was a document of negative liberties because it stated what the government cannot do to you, but did not say what the government must do for you. He sees that as a problem. I thought it was brilliant speaking right up to the point where he said it was a problem. Exactly. Exactly what it is. Yeah, and we talk about that at the at Appleseed events, and we talk about the fact that the the American Revolutionary War and the American Revolution are not the same things. The American Revolutionary War had a beginning and an end. It began in 1775, and it ended eight long, bloody years later. The American Revolution was never designed to end. It was supposed to be a, a continuing experience of expanding individual freedoms and liberties. Not by, uh, it was not supposed to be a, uh, an angle with the open, uh, large end facing you, which, uh, which grew to a smaller, sharp point or to a singularity uh, as it stretched away from you. It was supposed to be exactly the opposite. Correct. And, you know, I mean, we've, we've also lost the meaning of words. We have right now Arizona passed the law, which is basically a restatement of existing federal law on illegal immigration. Like it or not, I don't care what your politics are there, when we look at that as a state's rights issue, does the state have a right to enforce a law within its own borders? Yes. And, of course, the government, federal government, is now suing, uh, citing federal supremacy. Well, to even do that, we have to forget what federal supremacy means. Federal supremacy means there's two laws. Both are constitutional in the first place, and they're in conflict. And when they're in conflict and both are constitutional, both by state and federal constitution, the federal law is supreme. That is federal supremacy. Any freaking hick lawyer could tell you that with a basic understanding of law. A redneck like me that's never been to college can tell you that. Here we have two laws that are not in conflict. They're actually uniform. In fact, the state of Arizona doesn't even oppose, put a penalty in for violation of the law. The people that are held under the law are turned over to federal authorities, and the federal authorities decide what to do with them. And yet we have a president that believes he can sue through his Justice Department under federal supremacy. Now, this guy's supposed to be a constitutional scholar. He knows he's wrong. He just thinks he can get it done. And it's not the government today, it's not about whether it's right or wrong. It's about whether or not they can ram it down your throat. And it's time for people to stand up and fight it. If you don't fight it now, when are you going to fight it? When's it going to be a better time? Because it's just getting worse and worse from what I can see. 
Well, the government of America, the the whole idea, the whole the whole situation has swung uh, 180 degrees. You know, when I talk to folks at events, I tell them, look, the government is not the president. The government is not the, your senators. It's not your congressmen. It is not the, some alphabet uh, agencies. The government, at least uh, a very small part of it, is standing right here with me today, right here on this line. It's written right there in the document. It says, we, the people of these United States. They're the government. You shouldn't have to go to your representatives on bended knee and beg them for a boon. It's supposed to be the exact opposite. They are the servants to you. They serve at your leisure and do your bidding. Uh, right now, it's made, everybody is made to think that it's exactly the opposite, that you are the subject, the government is your ruler, and that you will accept whatever they decide to, uh, to give you. And make no mistake about it, it comes from small nuances. People taking the, the term used to be 50 years ago, everybody used it this way, constitutionally protected rights. What's the term today? Constitutional rights. Was that done because people are lazy now and like to use less words? Maybe a little bit, but the real reason, because a constitutionally protected right inherently infers that you have the right and it's protected by the Constitution. It's protected by the Constitution. Right. A constitutional right would mean the Constitution gave it to you, which means what? Government gave it to you. That little nuance, that one word being left out of our speech in our media, in our schools, in, in, in even times when people think they're asserting, I have my constitutional rights. No, you have your constitutionally protected rights. And even when you think you're asserting your right, when you do it that way, you're implying to anybody here, anybody that would hear that speech, that those rights come from government. Now, if government gives you a right, the government has the ability to take, to take the away the right. Away, right? And I know we're getting down into the on this, but this is so critical that we understand this today, and we start teaching our children this stuff today, because in another generation, they will roll over it. And one thing that people need to understand, when, they, when you're talking about the, the government being us, that's a, a beautiful thing, and it's also a problem in this country right now because of who us has become. Barack Obama is not president uh, because uh, of some magical thing. Barack Obama is president because he's a reflection of what America is turning into. And I know people don't want to hear that, and they're like, not me. But it only takes 1% majority to elect a president. Right. And that man is a reflection of the mentality of give me, give me, give me, with no understanding of the concept of service. You know, politics is great, and, and, and left and right and liberal and conservative and all these other concepts. But what happened to a time when even a, a very liberal Democrat like John F. Kennedy would say, ask what you can do for your country? And now we have government that's saying, let me tell you what I can do for you, as though there's some kind of mafiosa boss. You know, it sounds good, and it sounds good when Johnny Knuckles says, hey, let me do you a favor. But when Johnny Knuckles does you a favor, you're going to pay for it sooner or later. And that's, that's what right. the government's starting to do. We're going to do you a favor, and then you're going to owe us. And every time you want a little bit more sugar, we have to take a little bit more of your freedom to go along with it. And like I said, right. I think if you want that, there's France, there's Germany, there's Greece. We see how that's working out. You know, There's Portugal. Oh, we see how that was working out. You know, I mean, these things have been tried, and they always fail. Whenever a government tries to be all things to all people and control all people, it falls apart and it collapses. You can see what happened to the Venetians, what happened to the Romans. It's happened to every society that's ever done it. 
Well, you look look around you. Find another country. I I, I ask you. Find look around and find another country. Uh, now we're standing on the precipice. That's for sure. But look around you. Find another country that's doing a better job than us. And there is not one. There is not one unless it's a little tiny country uh, of uh, a million or less people with a huge uh, uh, a huge economy. Uh, there or is if not it's a country. If you, if you look at the best country, the country that's doing the best right now. It's always done very well for itself through wars. It's been Switzerland. And they do have a lot of socialism in Switzerland. But every man in Switzerland owns a gun because his government gave it to him and trained him how to use it. And the, the, not, the, not the socialism side of Switzerland, but the way that Switzerland is run as a nation, the neutrality, the, the, the staying out of other people's affairs, that's the way our founders set this country up to be. So if you can find a country that in any way is doing okay, Again, like you said, they're small enough to be able to, to do that. Um, you, you see a country that has some, some things that we should be doing that we're not doing, and some things that our founders saw as being uh, the way that we should function. So, yeah, you can find it, but you can only find little pockets of it. You also have to look at this. You can say that, well, it's working for France. It's working for Germany. Yeah, well, uh, what if we didn't have this thing called NATO, and our government was now spending the rest of the world on its military to protect them? So that they didn't have, so they had to then turn around and fit the bill to pay for that stuff themselves. What if all these countries with socialized medicine that are getting their drugs for half of what we pay for them didn't have us as the sugar daddy paying for the research, development, distribution, so that they could buy them at a discount through their government controls? Take right. away so the we United can, we States, and anywhere where it's working at all falls apart. That's right. That's exactly it's dead right. In a day. It's dead in a day, folks, and I know that it's going to bother some people to hear things like that, but if you look at the, you know, the one thing that never lies to us is mathematics. Two and two is four. No matter how many times you look at it, no matter how many ways you try to skin it, you break the twos into ones and put four ones together, you're back to four. You know, you can play all you want with algebra, but if there's two and two together, it's four. So math doesn't lie. So when we look at the economies of these nations and we look at what we spend on military and we say, well, this guy's our ally and we're, we're taking care of them, you take away our component, make them pay for it themselves, and they're bankrupt. And then if you take away how much subsidization goes on because of what we do with drug companies uh, and medical research in this nation and make them pay for their own portion of it without us paying a disproportionate share, and they're bankrupt. And you put the two together and they're double bankrupt. Unfortunately, we're bankrupt today. And that's why I think, that's why I do my show, and I think people need to be prepared because our government is in one of the most self-destructive modes I've ever seen any entity ever in. If our government was a public company, everybody running it would be in jail today for what oh, they're doing. Most if any definitely. public company did this, they would go to jail. They would, most they would definitely. certainly be bankrupt. You know, it'd be and you've, got, like a joke. you've got a situation, and you know, a lot of people, they, they want to jump up and down and scream, but America is a democracy, and it's not a democracy. Uh, and, you know, you've, everyone has heard the old joke about democracy being uh, two wolves and a sheep trying to decide what to have for dinner or voting what to have for dinner. That is the problem with democracy. And the problem that we're facing right now is we're right on that, we're right on that tipping point where, uh, where enough people in America have decided they've come onto this, this golden notion that uh, if they vote for themselves, if they vote to get a paycheck without working, and enough of them vote for it, then that's what they'll get. That's right where they are. Uh, that's right where we are founders, right now. Our founders warned us about that. Franklin said when the people of this nation realize that they can vote themselves money from the Treasury, the Republic will fall. That's it. And what, they, what, the, what the government has tried to do 
is build a sector of the economy where at least half of the people work for the government. If you work for government and you cut government, you might lose your job, so now you have a vested interest in the preservation and the expansion of government. And, and they, they've reached that precipice. And with things like taking over health care and you start linking private sector jobs into serving the public sector, we're going to be at the point where we're at about 66% of this economy directly tied to government employment. And at that yeah, point, and you, know, you have to make some really hard decisions as a people to ever change it. And my question is, do our people have the fortitude to do it? And I yeah, know and a lot of people, here, but we need enough to have the fortitude to do it. A lot of people think that, that, that there's not a problem with that. You know, they've got – remember all the people yelling for uh, – uh, we need to make sure that the airlines are safe, so we have to federalize the workers. Uh, yeah. That didn't do anything for their training. It just gave them a better pension and a health plan. Uh, right. The government is not – it has never been a success at anything it runs. Just the other day somebody sent me a message, and uh, I thought this was a perfect example of it. Uh, you know, out west uh, in Utah, they – uh, prostitution is legalized, and uh, there was a house. Going, yeah. uh, there was a house of ill repute that uh, that came under scrutiny because of uh, tax problems. Now, listen, folks. I want you to understand. It's not that they weren't making money; they were making money hand over foot. The problem is they weren't paying their taxes. Well, they've got the business was uh, confiscated by the IRS. So now you have the uh, United States government which is running a house of ill repute. And once again, let me tell you again, that the house was doing great. It was making a fortune until the government took it over. Uh, within a year, it was bankrupt. Uh, this and, is, and that's true. That's actually verifiable. And it's, uh, it was called the Mustang Ranch. This yeah, was like it was, it was a well-known... Yeah, it was a legal whorehouse, for lack of a, you know, a, a, any other term that actually explains it. This is called <laughs> sex and liquor. And your government could not make a profit selling sex and liquor. These people can't do anything right. And the few things they do right are the things that are not run by bureaucrats. You look at the military, they do the military mostly right, except the very top end work is taken over by bureaucrats. But the military is run by military people that make military-level decisions. And there's still bureaucracy in the military that makes the military do things it doesn't want to do. If you, but if you look at everything else that they've ever done, now people will say, well, what about, like, the highway system and Eisenhower doing that and the government building roads? Okay, that's commerce. That's actually one of the if, – if, if our government would stick to things like building roads and use the money for motor fuels tax to actually build and maintain roads instead of shanghaiing it out and doing other things with it, I wouldn't have a problem with that. There are – there is a function for government. That's why we have a constitution and a constitutional republic form of government. So we can do those few limited things, provide for common defense, protect the rights of others. The liberty in this nation is supposed to be, in the, the words of Oliver Wendell Holmes, the right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. And I can swing my fist until my brains come out until I hit somebody else. That's when government steps in and says, you, Jack Spirigo, have infringed upon the right of another we are here to protect that person who's weaker than you. That's their role. Anything outside of that is to be referred to, Tenth Amendment, folks, the states, and if not to the state, then to who? You, the people. So the people, what that means when it says that in the Tenth Amendment is not the people in some kind of legalistic, weird, hard-to-understand way, like when you hear a court case where the people is the prosecutor, it means right. that you make the decision for yourself. That's what it actually freaking means. 
So right. if the Constitution forbids the state to, to the, even the state government to do something because it's protected by the Constitution as a right, it's conferred down to you, so you decide whether or not, and, and I'll even put it to, to this level, you decide whether or not you smoke dope. I don't want you to. I don't think you should, but that's not the role of government. The, the, the war on drugs, it takes billions of dollars and throws them down in the third world rat hells and actually makes the business profitable in the first place. That's not the role of government. It would be amazing what kind of government we would have if they actually did the few things the Constitution says to do, and we would pay so much less taxes that it would be unbelievable to people. Oh, absolutely. If the government, the the problems that we have, the ups and downs, the uh, the the precipices that we end up walking off, walk off of uh, economically, uh, the greatest majority of times those are created. By the government. Now, the government will lead you to believe that those are created by the free enterprise system, by uh, uh, by the unbridled greed and lusts for money of these folks. the the free uh, the free trade by capitalism, uh, market economics. Uh, they are pretty hardcore. They pretty much can take care of themselves. They don't need uh, anyone manipulating them. <coughs> and uh, the uh, Sorry, I just got sidetracked by, uh, right. by trying to well, read two things there, at know, once. You know, if capitalism was actually what we did in this country, we wouldn't have any problem. We don't have capitalism in this country. I'm going to say something that folks have never heard me say this before. You're going to get really irritated when you hear it. Please give me a second to explain it. The economy of the United States of America today is fascist. Now, when if you hear that word, the reason they get irritated is they think of Hitler and concentration camps and all that, all that stuff. That was an action of a fascist government, but that is not fascism. Fascism is a system of economics, and it is defined in a textbook as neither laissez-faire capitalism nor communism, but a third way in between the two, where corporations and government see the divisions between the classes as advantageous and work together to utilize them for the betterment of society. That is the United States economy today. There isn't a congressman in office, there isn't a senator in office, there hasn't been a president in office in our lifetime that wasn't put there with corporate money. And when you, there's a, there, I can't remember the guy, but there's an English philosopher that said, when one hand is giving another hand money, the hand doing the giving is always the one in control because it is the hand that is higher. So your government is in the hands of the people that put them there. Because we have been dumbed down to a point where we're vo- we vote for whoever the hell we're told to. And we have people that say nonsense when a third party stands up, I don't want to waste my vote. Right. Well, that's brilliant, right? That's just absolutely the most brilliant, stu- stupid thing I've ever heard in my life. Because you, you're, you're not wasting your vote by voting for option A or B, both of which would have been bought and paid for by people that put their needs above yours. That's, that's brilliant. So you're not wasting your vote. Uh, to me... If we would start voting our conscience in this country, and we would start sending the right people to Washington, we don't need lawyers and career politicians in, in, in Washington. You know what we need? We need the out of work Detroit auto worker. He actually knows how to fix things. The farmer yeah. from Nebraska. We need people that go to Washington, serve for one or two terms, and then bring their ass back here and get right next to you back in their old house and live with the laws that they've created. That's how this was stuck. Like, right, and I've, the, I think I've mentioned that here on the show several times before. My method... Uh, of the government would be uh, you would get a, uh, a a telegram just like you got uh, during World War II greetings and uh, it would require you to to drop everything you're doing you head to Washington 
You do your job there, and you're only going to get that one shot at it for one or two years, and then you're going to be out. There, there is no building a feather bed. Uh, there is no making a career out of it and being tied to the teat of, uh, of anybody and everybody that can buy your vote. Right now, George Washington said this before he took, before he took office. He said the two-party system was going to be the death of America, and that's exactly what it is. And why? Because now there's not a whole lot of difference between the two. And even if there is, the times that there is, the folks there, they are interested only in keeping their jobs. So the more controversy that you can get between the two, the better. The more that you can keep the, uh, the left and the right arguing, the better. Vote for me, because I'm certainly better than that guy on the other side. So you have to vote for me, even though I'm doing a, a terrible job, even though I'm stealing your, your inheritance of your great-great-grandchildren, I'm still not the guy on the other side. When we should you know be looking what, at folks... It's done to everybody. It's done to us. You take a, a staunchly conservative district, and you put a guy in there that's a, a strong uh, uh, guy with the Second Amendment, a guy that we want for that purpose, and he can get away with almost anything else. Because, yeah. you know, no matter what, we're not going to turn that over. And then you take a, 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 a location that's staunchly liberal, uh, with a district somewhere around San Francisco with a huge uh, gay population, and you put a guy in there that's for gay marriage, and a guy that's against it will never win because we're even talking about those issues. Yeah, we're talking polarized about on a singular issue. Shouldn't even be, they shouldn't even be up for debate. Why are we debating the Second Amendment? It was written over 200 years ago. We can all read English, the language that it was written. Most of us can, right? So we don't need to discuss whether or not this is this legal, you know, even an issue anymore. This, this shouldn't even be part of the debate. Two guys want to get married in San Francisco. I know a lot of guys are going to disagree with me on this. I don't care. Not because I support that. I could say, you know, I really don't. But I don't think the government should be in the business of your marriage either. The government has no place there. That is between you and your spouse and whatever religious institution or God you make of your choice because that's the nation we actually live in. Instead, the government is legislating marriage, folks, not because they care about morality or they want to help you, because it's the legislation of your private property. That's what right. marriage legislation is all about, making the marital estate subject to the state so the state can tax it when you dissolve the contract that you enter in, and we call that divorce. That's what the, all this legislation behind marriage, that's all that's about, is government control of it. And then they pick it up and they use it as a divisive tool for class warfare. They do the same thing, again, with, with gun rights. If we had politicians that actually, if we had, I don't call politicians, if we, had, if we had leaders who would actually worry about, first, this is constitutional before they did anything, then you could have a reasonable conversation with somebody on the complete opposite side of the aisle. You really could. And that's what people in this country talked about for its first hundred years. When, when there was, the government was going to do something, before they talked about whether it was good or bad, right or wrong, or if they supported it or didn't yeah, support it. Do they have the right to do it? Can they do this? People knew the Constitution. Yeah. Can they? Are they allowed? Even if I want it, if they're not allowed to do it, then we need to do a constitutional convention and empower them to do it if we can agree with two-thirds of the states that it needs to be. If we can't do that, it doesn't get done because that's the system. We've well, you can go back and you can look at the, at the – you can go back and look at the records, and there are plenty of times when you have uh, 70, 80, 90 percent of the Congress, they're all agreement. This is something that should be done, but guess yep. what? We're not allowed to do it, so we can't do it, so we have and to, they would we have not to do it. Go to the, and what they had to do then 
was go to the people, make their case, get buy-in at the state legislature level, get the states to ratify an amendment, and then change the Constitution to allow it to be done. And if they couldn't pull that off, you don't get to do it. What a simple, beautiful way to run a nation. Well, look at all the drift. That is, I mean, it's, the drift doesn't happen anywhere. And, you, and you've mentioned, which I completely agree with, the uh, Second Amendment over and over again. Well, look, at, uh, look at all the rest of the rights. I mean, how, uh, how confusing is Congress shall make no laws? I mean, that, that's, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Congress yeah, shall yeah. make no laws. Uh, not yeah. uh, there's a law that you can't have this in the schools, you can't have religion. Now, I've gone back and I've read quite a bit about uh, the founders and their views on religion, and it's not nearly as simple as anybody thinks. Uh, my, oh, view on it, my view on it is this. The God that I serve does not require any support, any kind of a crutch from man. And that means no laws uh, for or against. Uh, I'm, so, I'm with you on that. And I think, you know, if we ran the, the – we can get on the school system here for a minute. We might as well. We've, we've, we've drifted from rifle craft quite a bit anyway. Because all these things are in, in, in intertwined back into your right to exist as you see fit. In our school systems today, we have government-run schools with taxpayer money where the government tells the school what to do. We spend more money on, on students in many states than it costs to go to the average – low-end university, and we're putting out students that test below, you know, 25 other nations in the world in math and science and, and reading. And, and we're doing that because it's exactly what the government wants. In, 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 you know, in, a, in a situation that was run the way it should be by the Constitution, schools would be under the direct control of local governments. There would be competition in the schools, and if you wanted your kid to go to a school where they read the Bible every morning, he could go there. And if you wanted your kid to go to a school where they never cracked the Bible open, he could go there. And if you wanted your kid to go to, the other guy wanted the kid to go to a different school where they taught comparative religion, he could go there. And the, the schools would have to compete for the parent's business and the money that the parent wields. Even if it's done through taxation, by allowing choice, the parent could decide, well, if you're going to put this much funding behind my student, I want it to go to this school or you know, school B or school C. And then everybody could have what we were supposed to have, which is liberty. Because we are not all going to agree. And to force any one belief system into the school at a spiritual level where we're supposed to be teaching people, you know, math, science, reading, is wrong. But to not allow an outlet for people to experience that if that's what they want is equally wrong. Exactly. Well, the way I see it right now, the government, just, and they've been good, they're running at this at just the fastest pace they can get, is, is assuming the role of the hardcore uh, street uh, drug pusher. I mean, getting the folks as uh, as addicted to they can as they can uh, to federal money, where they cannot survive without it. You cannot live your life without federal money, without uh, without the government taking care of you, without the nanny state uh, constantly hooked up to their teat. Uh, and that's exactly where we're headed now. And it's going to be very very hard even to to slow this down let alone reverse it, without everybody understanding what's going on. And that's one of the main things that the Appleseed Project is doing, is we're saying, look, guys, when you come to the event, we're going to teach you how to shoot. And we're going to, you're going to set a goal, and you're going to achieve that goal. And now the logical progression from that is what's next. Well, we'll tell you what's next. Now I want to tell you that you have a, uh, an obligation to your nation. You can do one of two things. You can go home, you can, you can pretend that you heard nothing here, 
that you learn nothing here. You can get back on the couch. You can get the remote. You can start flipping the channels again. That's fine. If you want to do that, that's fine. The other thing you have to do is you have to decide, or the other, uh, the other path you can take is you can understand that there are some problems. Now, the nation, I wouldn't consider it, it's not a done deal. Nothing's ever done uh, until it's done. It's not a done deal that, that we're goners. You have a sacred obligation to understand that, that the nation needs your help. We need to provide some maintenance. This document that uh, has run this nation has been running uh, virtually on its own for the last 235 years. It's been running great. I mean, such a well-crafted uh, document has been running great for 235 years. But we're, we need some maintenance now. And it's your duty to understand that you have an obligation uh, to, uh, to interact with the nation and help provide uh, the the safeguards for the freedoms and liberties that the nation affords you. And not only is it your, your duty to do that, it's your duty to make sure that your neighbor is doing that. I tell folks, you cannot delegate your responsibilities to anybody. You can't, you can't delegate your freedoms and liberties, the responsibilities for safeguarding them, to anyone. You can't delegate it to your mother, your dad, your son, your daughter, your doctor, your lawyer, you have to be personally responsible for ensuring that tomorrow when you wake up, you still have those same freedoms and liberties that you went to bed with. That's, what, that's the whole idea behind this program, is making sure that folks are awake, making sure that they're awake and understanding that, that they, the debt that they owe to those folks who stood together on April 19, 1775, that's not one that you can repay, but you can help uh, you can help uh, continue to safeguard and preserve the freedoms and liberties that those folks uh, established then and help to make sure that those freedoms and liberties uh, do not erode, do not disappear. All right, I'm off my, my rant. Jack? Hello? Jack? Okay. All right. I think that, uh, okay. Okay. Oh, there you go. You got me now? Yeah, I got you. The, uh, yeah, the, the, the line the, dropped, and I had to dial back in, so you had to bring me back okay. on. Yeah, we have some chatter in the, in the chat room saying, what about some proactivity? What can we do? So let's switch gears a little bit. And first of all, all the stuff we just talked about, I know it sounds like a rant, and, 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 and the scouts just had an awesome – I was kind of glad I fell off because I got to listen to you there for a minute. I, that was awesome. And these things that we're talking about, these fundamental nuances, first, commit them to memory, know them, and be able to recite them the way you just heard them and teach them to your children. That's one proactive thing you can do. But th we can only do so much with politicians and ballot boxes and all this other stuff. What I've been saying from day one is the fundamental changes that you make in your daily actions in your life is the real revolution. Uh, we just brought out a new song on my show called The Revolution Is You. And I had over 650 pictures sent to me of people doing things to be part of the revolution that have nothing to do with politics. Finding a garden in the backyard, putting solar panels on their roof, 
creating independence from the systems, creating the ability to survive even if the systems of support collapse. Every time you take one step of independence, you're living that ongoing revolution that Scout was talking about. And that is as simple as growing a tomato in your backyard. As simple as that sounds, as ridiculous as that sounds to a guy that's more concerned with home defense, let's say, and that's part of why you're learning the tactical use of a rifle or politics or history or anything else, that tomato is in some ways more powerful because it can do things that other things can't. It can reach people uh, that some of these other concepts won't get to. When you take your kid and you pack a bag of them up and you send them over to an 80-year-old lady, you form a bond between that child and that, that old lady in your neighborhood that, that's inseparable. That's proactivity. When you decide, I've had enough of living in a system where every time I flip a light switch, not only do I have to pay for it, I get taxed on it, and you put in even two kilowatts of, of uh, backup power with solar, you've taken one more step toward independence and liberty. And every single step you take like that, make no mistake about it, scares the crap. And I would use a different word, but I know it's kind of a family-friendly show. But it scares the crap out of your government. And when you sit your child down who comes home from school and says, we learned about this today, and you say, honey, you answer the question way, so you get an A on your test tomorrow. But I want to know what you think about that, and I want to talk to you about what the Constitution says, and then I want to hear what you think about that after you hear what the actual law is. That scares the crap out of every elected official in this country. Because what they're afraid of is that one day they're going to feel like, oh, crap, they know. Now they know. They know they have the power. And it's not right. just about voting, and it's not just about writing letters. It's about what you do for yourself and your family every stinking day. It's about paying off your credit card debt and not playing that game anymore. Oh, yeah. Everything that – when you start out to make a, a change in your lifestyle and when you're thinking about a lifestyle, living a lifestyle – I call it living the lifestyle of a rifleman – uh, and I know that for you and your show, and we want to make sure that we talk about this real quick before, before we let you go, which is uh, living a survival lifestyle, but living the lifestyle of a rifleman. That means you start right there on your front porch. You start uh, making sure that first you are good to go, your home is good to go, your family is good to go, and then you start walking out in ever-increasing uh, circles from you 100 feet at a time, making sure that your community is good to go, making sure that you are beginning to engage yourself in politics and with your, uh, with making differences right there first on your own doorstep, and then working out from there, uh, making sure that whenever you are engaged, and I tell folks all the time, uh, you mentioned this earlier, folks saying that their vote, their one vote didn't make a difference, or their one voice didn't make a difference. I'm telling you, it does, and it makes a very big difference a lot of times, especially when you're calling your representatives, your reps. Uh, so many folks. Are, uh, are eaten up with apathy and laziness that they're not going to talk to their reps. They're not going to call them. So when you call in to your representative, your one voice that they're hearing on the phone is actually worth uh, 100, 200, 500, 5,000 uh, voices. And they actually have uh, uh, programs that, uh, they, that determine how many people uh, would think the way that you do. If if 10 people call in, that's going to represent uh, 10,000 people in their district. So well, your voice does make a difference. If who we voted for didn't matter, they wouldn't spend $50,000 a vote on a presidential election. 
Exactly. One vote doesn't matter. You don't pay fifty thousand dollars for something that doesn't matter, and, and that's the reality. And you know, and it's all local too on the proactivity. It's one thing to say, well, if I call my state rep or my or my you know my my senator, uh, my federal senator, they're not going to listen to me. When you call your state senator or you call your state representative that goes to your state capital, they operate with a lot less people per district than those guys up at the federal level do, and they're a lot easier to get rid of and throw out so they pay attention more. Uh, and when you start getting down to city council level stuff, and that's what's down time of these circles, you know, that you start out close to home. Well, you know, if your city government's being run screwed up, you don't even need to worry about your state yet. You need to fix that. Then you need to fix your county. Then you can focus on your state. And the beauty of that is the closer you are to home, when you pick the phone up and call somebody, the more they listen. If I call someone from the Arlington Town Council, they do care because they know all i got to do is walk outside of my uh, house and walk around my neighborhood two or three times, and I can change the voting uh, uh, profile for them. And so the closer you get to home, the more impact you can have. And that's with all things, whether it's politics or whether it's just lifestyle. Uh, what you do and how you personify that, how you reflect on that to others, that's why I'm a big fan of gardening. When you... When you garden, people have conversations with you about that, and that opens up the world to talk about guns and, and, and prepping and survivalism and politics and anything else. You guys can have a conversation about what you're in common. And I think that's one of the big mistakes a lot of people that are really passionate make uh, about the Second Amendment. You want to talk about that to a person who's not open to that yet. Talk to them about other things. Make them understand that you're informed, and then maybe they'll listen to you. But if you have a first conversation with somebody about an issue that you're opposed on, they're going to view you as being in opposition to everything that they stand for. That's right. And listen, I tell folks, start off with this premise, and it's usually wrong, but it doesn't matter because you owe this much to your rep, and that is start off with the premise that they don't know uh, the things that you need, that they don't know that they're not doing uh, the right thing. You start off with that premise uh, so that you're not immediately trying to be hostile with them. You're just saying, look, I know you probably don't know this or you're not aware of this, but here's what I need. Here's what my family needs. Here's what my community needs. So you owe that to your reps. You owe them that much to give them the, uh, to give them that respect to say maybe they don't know what's going right. on. And I, I, I'm just I want to make sure that they know. Okay, now you've done that. Now they know. Now you have to make sure that they follow through on it, and right. you let them know that you are going to be behind them. And I don't. I think that any time a person votes uh, by a party. They're making a huge mistake. We talked about this earlier. When you vote for a party, you're falling right into the trap that they want you to fall in because voting for a party keeps everybody in their jobs. You look at that person, you find out if that person does a good job or not, and then you vote for them regardless of what party they're in. You know, and then, I want to talk about that if I could real quick because people say to me, well, you know, you say that, but I always find that I'm more in line with the Republican or I'm more in line with the Democrat. Trust me, folks, you can be the most dyed-in-the-wool conservative Republican, and odds are a West Texas Democrat is going to have more in common with you than a lot of so-called Connecticut Republicans. And, and, oh, definitely. And we have to go deeper than party ideology when we make our decisions. And we also, this is the one, you've got to start voting in the freaking primaries. That's where you get rid of income. We're finally learning that this year, at least on some limited level. But in a lot of places, we didn't throw out a single incumbent in huge portions of our states. That's craziness. We have a Congress with an approval rating of like 
If you had an employee that you were 28% approving of, you would fire his butt and you would hire someone new. And that's the other thing about this. Well, they don't listen to me or I can't just vote him out, call him out. Let's say that you were on a board of directors and there was 10 of you and you needed seven people to hire a director-level position to vote yes. And you were one of the three that voted no, no on that board. So that director is getting hired into your company. And they're going to work in your company. And they're going to run your company. You have to let them do it. You voiced your opposition to the board. You were overruled. You still are going to ask for performance, aren't you? You're still going to talk to that employee. You're still going to say what you expect as your position, board-level person, speaking down to a director-level position. And that's the problem. You don't get Most people don't get You exist above your government. That's, that's the way this thing's structured. You have to view those clowns as your employees, and maybe they were hired without your consent, but you're still part of the board of directors. That's the people's position, to be that board of directors. And they're still accountable to you, and they still need to hear from you. And when they're doing poorly, you need to restate your case as to why you didn't want them hired in the first place and why they got to go and why they've got to be replaced. And maybe your other board members still want somebody that's got a different ideology, but at least they can agree with you that this clown's not performing. That's what a 28% approval rating means. And that's where we got to start making these choices. We're going to start firing these clowns in March, not November. Exactly. Exactly. Just like you said, so you start. You have to get involved. You can't wait and say, I'll do whatever it takes in November. You have to, you have to be involved in the game all along. And you can't just look at the prefix. You have to look at their record. What do they do? What do they really mean? And that is determined by how they're voting. And then you talk to them and you tell them what you need them to do. And some of the people on this phone right now, you guys need to get out there and run for office. And, and you'll say that, well, somebody like me should run for office. But with the 469 episodes of the Survival Podcast I've done, I'm not getting elected to county dog catcher once the media gets a hold of me. <laughs> right. So we, we've got folks. people out there, they need to, you guys need to run for office. I mean, especially these lower-level positions. It is not that hard to become a state representative, believe it or not if you can get a few people behind you and doing something about it, especially in the world of Facebook and Twitter. Oh, yeah. Well, we've got uh, several folks that are running for office. We've got some guys here in Texas. Awesome. We've got uh, Jim Tomes in Indiana. And remember, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, pushing for him or, or against him. I'm just telling you he's one of the candidates. Uh, there are a lot of folks, and we're really working on that. Uh, that's awesome. And the more people that do it, the better. And that scares them, too. You, somebody in the chat room wanted proactivity. That's proactive when you stand up and say, I'm going to run. Because even when you lose, if, if a person that's unknown comes out and pulls, like, 13% of the vote, it's like, oh, crap. That's the response that that gives. So the, the guy that loses, the other, like the other third-party guy that loses, you know, he's like, even he's like, damn, this is not the way this is supposed to work out. I was supposed to get 40. I knew I was going to lose. The other guy's supposed to get 60. That's status quo, and I'm going to get a job working for somebody else as a political favor for even running in a district. And when they, some, some unknown comes in and pulls 13, 14, 20, 25 percent of the vote and loses, it's still it's like, a, it's like when they, you're in a military and you've got two shifts and one's threatening the other one to back off, and they fire a shot across the bow. No damage was done but a clear signal was sent. That's proactivity right there. Well, listen, before uh, we got, uh, oh, I guess about uh, 17 minutes or so. Okay. And uh, what I'd like to do is, is once again, let folks know, I know you've been running it on the, the chat line, I'm on the chat there, is the fact that you're offering uh, all of the Apple Cedars listening, and we've got a pretty good crew tonight, all the folks listening, you're offering them a discount for the right. Survival Podcast. You give them that real quick again. Yeah, it's for the, the podcast is free. You can get the podcast 
all 469 episodes that I've done up till today by going to www.thesurvivalpodcast.com. On that page, you will see a link that says Member Support Brigade. That's for people that want to support the show and the work I'm doing and get a good return of investment. You get discounts to about 20 different vendors, and there's things like preparedness items, uh, seeds, uh, all types of uh, all types of vendors that are available that you get discounts to. There's a, a pile of eBooks. Uh, they're mostly on preparedness things, things like building bee, uh, beehives and doing beekeeping, and, and a tremendous amount of other information. A bunch of videos that are by me that are available nowhere else. That's usually fifty dollars a year, which is twenty cents an episode to support the show. Uh, again, that's voluntary. You don't have to pay that to, to get the podcast. That's a kind of an additional step. But for anybody listening tonight who uses the code RIFLE, which I think would be easy to remember, you get the first year for 30 bucks if you don't want to. Okay. And then uh, the other thing I would like to do is uh, is that uh, we talked last time you were on about living a survival lifestyle. Now, I know we only have about 15 minutes, I know. But you can give people the outline of that because sure. I, I love the concept. I absolutely love sure. it. And uh so if you, could, if you could just give us a quick rundown on that. Sure. The show is the Survival Podcast, and the tagline is helping you live the life you want if times get tough or even if they don't. And I put that together as the guiding philosophy from episode one forward because looking at the, the prepper industry, the survival industry, I saw a lot of hysteria and I saw a lot of people who kind of jumped off the bandwagon, spent a lot of money, blew a lot of money, and bought a bunch of stuff, threw it in the garage, and then whatever event they were waiting for didn't happen, and then they felt foolish, and then they fell out, and then they put no preparedness in their life whatsoever, which is exactly the opposite of what I wanted to happen. So my guiding tenet was anything we do for modern survival living better have a payoff today, even if there isn't a disaster tomorrow. So if we pay off our debt, and we've got deeply in debt, that's great if we lose our job because it's one less thing to worry about. But if we don't lose our job, then all the money we would be paying on our debt in these monthly installments that last forever can go to our retirement, they can go to our savings, or they can go to better our lifestyle. If I plant a garden in the backyard and there's a food shortage because there's a trucker strike because gas goes to $8 a gallon, which don't think it can't happen, right, then I've got an additional supply of food. If I learn how to preserve and can my own food and dehydrate and things like that, that can add to my pre preparations without spending a lot of money. But even if nothing ever goes wrong, I'm eating better. My property's worth more. I have better mental and physical health because I'm out there, I'm active, I'm working, and I'm able to share what I'm doing with my neighbors. And every other aspect, solar energy, wind energy, when it comes to alternative energy, I could give a crap about saving polar bears, people. I don't care about my carbon footprint. I don't care if my carbon footprint is as big as the Jolly Green Giant's foot for, for all I could care. What I care about is being completely 100% dependent on a system that can fail and being like people in Tennessee and Arkansas last year that went without power for three weeks with no recourse. So I make sure I have a backup generator, and I make sure that I do things that, to, to provide additional power for myself. Well, if nothing goes wrong, I still cut my power bill. So everything that we do with modern survival living is about better today even if nothing goes wrong. And with that tenant, everything else kind of springboards off from there. And it's real easy to make a decision about whether something goes in your life or not. And it doesn't matter what it is. Do I want to charge this to MasterCard? Does that improve my life today? Maybe, at least a little bit emotionally. But does it also improve my life if things go wrong? No, I don't do it. Or I look at, do I buy a truckload of MREs? Well, does that improve my life if nothing goes wrong? No. So that's not my, my approach either. And it makes all the decision-making so simple. Because you simply look at it and go, does it have a, a, a current benefit 
and a future benefit, and it doesn't act as insurance as well. If you, and then you can do anything you want after you kind of put your stability in your life with that. You want to go out and blow some money? Hey, we only live once, at least as far as uh, most people believe. Uh, and even if, even if we, you know, if there's that reincarnation belief out there, this life you only live once, so humor me with it. You can go out and you can have a blast and we can enjoy ourselves and we can, we can blow some money once in a while. That's why the stuff exists in the first place. That's when we pay off debt, so we'll have money to blow. You know, if you don't pay your debt off, you'll never have any money to blow. Uh, so I'm okay with all of the technology and all of the great stuff. I'm not some guy that wants to go out and live in a bunker, but I'm also going to tell you that some really bad things could occur. But if you build the stability under your life the right way, you'll be better off no matter what happens. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Well, you know, whenever I – the whole reason I came into the Appleseed Project <coughs> was uh, tied into the uh, Katrina and uh, Rita events. And I, I think I told you about this last time we were talking, and that was because whenever the, the uh, – you see all of what happens to the folks in Louisiana. You know, that was a hurricane. That was real damage. That was real destruction. But even though those folks, uh, you know, they've been going through that for a couple of hundred years – they still were completely unprepared. They were un, unable uh, to even take care of themselves uh, in the in the most uh, remedial fashions. All right, then you move over to Texas. Now, Texas, we've seen what can happen to the folks uh, in Louisiana. So, okay, so now we're not we're not going to. Well, man, that's not going to happen to us. So, when the storm starts to come, uh, we're, let's evacuate Houston. All right, good, good idea. We're gonna, nobody's going to wait. We're going to evacuate Houston. We're not going to be like the Louisiana folks. Well, what happens? They can't get out of the city. They can't even get out of the city. And people uh, they end up burning to death on the highways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And now I'm, I'm actually, uh, I'm, I'm right at uh, one tank of gas from Houston. So I'm really not as far as I'm supposed to be. But uh, this was this happened. Getting the land happened before I, uh, before I knew any of this information. So uh, I'm right, uh, one tank of gas from Houston. Nobody made it out of Houston, and yet there is still a parade of vehicles nonstop passing by my remote highway out in the middle of nowhere, and that's with nobody getting out. Now, what would have happened if they would have all gotten out? What would have happened? What if there would have been a real situation, a real hurricane, a real uh, you know, earthquake, uh, whatever it was, a real dirty bomb, and they all got out of there? I'm telling you, it would have been a disaster. Folks have a different mindset whenever they feel some kind of stress or pressure, and they say, you know what, uh, no rules uh, cover me anymore. I'm going to do whatever I can, whatever I have to do in order to get mine, in order for me to make it. Now, if that includes doing something to you and taking what you have, I'm going to do that. Now, I'm already... Uh, and it, it, it's so much bigger than, than just these things that people don't realize are vulnerabilities and our weaknesses. There is uh, a huge portion of our electrical power in the United States is produced by nuclear power. And our nuclear power plants, if they're not maintained properly, pose a huge risk. Do you know, Scout, there are less than 3,000 people in the United States that actually know how to run a nuclear power plant, run it, manage it, control it. Even if right. all the employees are there, they can't do it. So we had something recently like the swine flu pandemic that wasn't. But what if it was? Because it's only a matter of time before viruses mutate to a way that is, is deadly and lethal. And you say, well, even if we had a huge portion of the population wiped up, mankind perseveres. What if it's 2,000 of those 3,000 guys that end up dead, though? Or none of those 3,000 guys can get to work because of quarantine. 
How many people can't drive a truck to bring the food to your grocery store because of a quarantine and a pandemic? How many things get shut down? And we've already seen what happens to our economy when one portion fails. It creates a cascading effect because everything's interconnected. When you have an event like a major pandemic that's global, you'll see all of these things starting to implode. And then people panic, and then everybody that hasn't planned decides, I'm going to get out of the city, like you said. And sooner or later, most of them are going to get out one way or another if they don't end up sick and dead. And when they do, where are they going to go? And if you aren't prepared for that eventuality, and I'm not saying that you have to hurt anybody or anything, but I am saying you have to be prepared for it to occur, because there's been people that have sat in the middle of disasters that had everything they needed to survive and died, because they never ran through the scenario in their head. So when the disaster came, they didn't know what to do, even though they had all the resources they needed. We right. need to be mentally prepared for this stuff, not just physically prepared. We need to accept the fact that it can happen. And you need to accept the fact that no matter how nice a guy you think your next-door neighbor is, he will do you harm to feed his children if his child is starving, period. That's innate to human beings. It's part of what makes us survivors in the first place. We will take care of our children. We will go before we'll let our kids go. And that's dangerous when there's shortages. So... Right, and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't even have to be prepared for the problem. Right, and it doesn't even have to get really to that major uh, of a situation for you to face these things. Everyone thinks that the that the economy is, uh, or that our the social fabric, the uh, the social build of America is a rock hard, uh, you know, uh, carbon fiber uh, structure, and it's not. It's a very, very fragile thing. It doesn't take much at all uh, to destroy it. Look, at, uh, look through history. You see the, the blackouts in some of the big cities. What happened? Nothing happened. They didn't get nuked. The city didn't burn down. Uh, there was no uh, viral disaster or anything like that. The power got shut off. And when it did, everybody went crazy. It's, the fabric of society is a very thin veneer. And you have to remember that you need to be prepared. Uh, for for any and all events. And it doesn't mean, uh, like you were saying earlier, Jack, you don't have to go out and start digging a bunker or go out tomorrow and buy five tons of food. But what you do need to do is start thinking about this today and start running through these things. Well, what would ha- well, If the power were out for a week, start small. If the power were out for a week, what would I do? How would I go about that? That would mean that my water may not be running, my phone may not work, uh, my refrigerator stuff isn't running. What, what, I, what am I going to do then if that happens? And develop a, a, a decent plan for that, all right? And then move a little bit farther past that. Say uh, something else should happen. Say that, uh, uh, you know, that, there, that people did start getting sick from some type of uh, swine, bird, uh, whatever, flu. Uh, what would I do then? How would I exist without going to the grocery store every day and, and rubbing my lips on the water fountain? You know, how would I get by without doing that? And, and start thinking about these things. You don't have to go crazy about it, but you better have a plan. Or when something happens, it's going to bite you right in the hiney. Absolutely. I mean, and it, I, I just think that folks really need to understand that this stuff applies to them today, even if we don't have these disasters. I just dropped the link into the chat room for those of you that are in there that I talked about that new theme song, The Revolution Is You. There's 120 people that are doing something for today that helps them prepare for tomorrow, whether it's bad or good. Take a look at that link. 
Um, it's on YouTube, so I can't you know verbally give the link out on the phone uh, very well. But uh, if you go to YouTube and search for Revolution Issue, you, you'll find it. This stuff matters today. My 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 final I guess case to the audience is you have to be prepared because it's in your best interest to do so. That that's really what it's all about. It's one of the most selfish things that you can do, but it's also one of the most selfless things that you can do. Because I, I talk to people a lot of times when the topic of survival comes up, they say, well, I've laid down my life for my children. And my answer, my, my response to that is, and then when, what's next? Who's going to do that next after you're gone? If you don't take care of you, no one's going to take care of your family the way that you will. So laying your doubt, life down is noble, but it's better for you to live for your kids so you can be there to continue to protect them and to protect your grandchildren. And if you're lucky to be around long enough, your great-grandchildren. You have got to preserve yourself. And no one is going to do that for you because I don't care what anybody says, who pats you on the head, tells you they love you, gives you a hug. No one cares about you as much as you do. So give yourself the same respect you would give to your kids and be willing to work hard to protect yourself and protect your family. Exactly. Exactly. Now, your, your podcast... Your podcast comes out once, let's see. Once a day. Once a day. Once a day every day of the year, uh, except for, you know, I think you told me the two days. Yeah, yeah, I do Monday through Friday, yep. Okay. And uh, you, can, you can get that at survivalpodcast.com. Uh, I did episode 469 this morning, and every episode is available. Like the top, the last 50 are available on iTunes. That's another thing with the Members Brigade folks. You get every episode in zip files uh, if you do the Members Brigade. Uh, you can go through it and download them individually or stream them or whatever, but if you want them all and just to be able to drop them onto your iTunes, uh, you know, your iPod or whatever or any other player, uh, you get the zip files in the uh, the Members Brigade. I forgot about that. Yeah, and listen, I, I don't know if you guys know this because I, uh, uh, I don't know if Jack had talked about it this on his, on his show or not, and I'm sure you don't mind me telling folks that, uh, no. that, that whenever you were when you were first starting out with this, uh, you didn't uh, have some cushy thing where you uh, where you could uh, do your show and uh, and have everything else paid for, etc. Uh, Jack was telling me that uh, in the beginning, in order to make this work, he was still doing his regular work, doing his regular route, and he was doing his show from the telephone in his car while he was uh, while he was out on the road working. Yeah, and, I actually uh, had a recorder, a recorder and a headset, and I would do my show uh, every morning on my commute up to Frisco. And then I would come home, and I worked long. I was uh, actually a partner in a company and effectively acted as the director of marketing for three others. I would get home at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, and I would do the outline for my show uh, maybe up till 1 o'clock in the morning sometimes, get in the car at 6 a.m. the next day and do it again. And I did that for almost about, I guess I'd say 18 months before I got to the point now where I do the show full time. And that is uh, that is really like, uh, anybody out there that you, if you think I want a business uh, and you, you have a full-time job and you want to build something of your own for another uh, level of preparedness because there's nothing like controlling your own destiny, that's what it takes today. It takes that kind of effort and work. And uh, what I can tell you, though, is the rewards are amazing because when I asked my audience the first year that I did it, I had a call-in show where people just called in to my 800 number and said, this is what I've done over the last year. When I listened to that, uh, it, it was the most accomplishing thing I felt I'd ever done. I'd been given awards for sales and all kinds of things, and been told I was a great guy and all, but that I actually felt like I accomplished something. When I put together the video this year that went to that song, and I went through 650 pictures to call out 120, it was 
absolutely amazing. And you can make a difference. They don't ever let anybody give you any bullshit that what you do doesn't matter because it absolutely does. If it didn't, no one would say it didn't. You only tell people what they do doesn't matter when you're afraid of them. The guy that knocks the guy to the canvas in a boxing match and yells at his opponent to stay down is only doing that because he's afraid he's going to get up. So, you know, take a, take a look at that video, guys, and understand that's what you guys are doing, not me. Okay, listen, when we get the – we've got a, a – uh... Uh, an apple seed range we're getting ready to open up in DFW. When we get that opened up, you're going to come, right? you damn right I'll come. All right, listen, Jack, thank you, thank you, thank you. Everybody else, thanks, everybody, and we will see you next Tuesday. All right? Remember the deal that uh, Jack offered, and remember Survival Podcast, and uh, I hope to see you again soon, and I'll talk to you, Jack, soon. Okay, take care. Take care. Thanks, everybody. All right, good night, everybody, and we'll see you next Tuesday night, uh, same time.